Well, this morning we're kicking off a three-week series that I've titled The Christ-Centered Christmas. It's my hope that these studies will help us all to remember that Christmas, well, Christmas is a celebration that should center our focus on the first advent of Christ Jesus. And with this as the focus, we're going to spend our time today considering the incredible example of those wise men who traveled from the east in search of our Savior. And as we examine their example, we'll begin to see that the wise men truly were wise. And they were wise because they were willing to invest everything they had just to have a Christ-centered Christmas. Now, in light of their example, we should spend our time today considering how we might become those believers who are making the same wise investment as those wise men. And as we make our way through the text before us today, well, we're going to begin to see that the wise men invested their time in order to celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus. We'll also consider the way that the wise men invested their talents in order to celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus. And then finally, we'll see how the wise men invested their treasure uh, in order to celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Here in the second chapter of Matthew, uh, we find uh, Matthew's account of the day when the wise men from the east arrived there in Jerusalem. As you make your way to the second chapter of Matthew's gospel account, well, I just want to se- uh, spend a second here pointing out that the commonly told Christmas story, which places the wise men in Jerusalem on the eve of Jesus' birth, it's actually a tradition which is uh, biblically and historically inaccurate. As a matter of fact, and I'm sorry to disappoint, but uh, here in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that the wise men from the east actually arrived at a point in time after the baby Jesus was born. So if you, if you have your nativity scene set up with the wise men there uh, at, the, at the manger scene, uh, it, it's not biblical or historically accurate. And to prove my point, let's, let's look here at Matthew chapter 2. If you would uh, look with me there beginning at verse 1. Uh, here Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, Now, here in the opening verses of this chapter, we find the Apostle Matthew. He's setting the stage for this story by first defining the frame of time. And it's there in verse 1 where he informs us that these wise men from the east, they arrived in Jerusalem. When? After... Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So if you have this idea that the wise men were there with the little drummer boy playing parumpa pum pum and these sorts of things, it's not biblical. These men weren't actually there on the eve of our Savior's birth, as so many nativity scenes would seem to suggest. And so if you want to have an accurate nativity scene at your home, well, then make sure that the wise men are actually outside, maybe on the eastern side of your house, And then over the course of December and into January, you can move them closer and closer and closer. Uh, And maybe mid-January, you put them inside the house next to the manger scene, uh, next to the Christmas tree that you haven't thrown out yet. Now listen, we aren't told why they were so late to the party. But if I had to guess, well, it's probably due to the fact that they were wise men and therefore unwilling to stop and ask for directions. (laughs) 
But listen, regardless of, of how late they were to the party, listen, we should first take a moment to consider that these guys were making a huge investment of their time so that they could show up there in Israel and worship the one who had been born king of the Jews. And, and I should first point out here that these guys had actually traveled a great distance just to be there in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at verse 1. Here Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. In other words, these guys were Eastsiders. And they had come to worship Jesus Christ. And Matthew presents us with with a few clues that help us to lock down where these guys were probably from. The first clue is based on the fact that these wise men, they came from the east. And what this means is that they were probably from Persia. Chances are they were actually from Babylon, which was deep in the Persian Empire at this point in time. Further evidence of this can be seen in the title, Wise Men. Matthew was actually using the Persian word, magus, which is the masculine singular form of the plural word magi. And just to be clear, you know, the word magus was actually used by the Babylonians, by the Medes, as well as by the Persians in in reference to their teachers, their priests, their physicians, their astrologers, their seers, their interpreters of dreams, their soothsayers, even their their sorcerers. And so this word was broadly used of of many different uh, practices. And and what this means then is that there's good reason, uh, with Matthew using this Persian word, there's good reason to believe that these guys were from the region surrounding the Persian Gulf. What this also means then is that they had actually traveled over 800 miles, probably over the course of a month, uh, just to search for our Savior and worship at the feet of the baby Jesus. That's quite an investment of time. And as we consider this investment of time, we have to agree that these guys were clearly committed to this mission to meet our Messiah. Seriously, I, you know, I hear Christians complaining about their 20-minute commute to church, you know, the, uh, which they take in a, in a gas or, or an electric car, you know, and, and it's just like, oh, it's just so far, it's just 20 minutes, just 30-minute drive, just can't, oh. These guys traveled 800 miles on a camel, you know, they're, they're, they spent a month on stinky camels traveling more than 800 miles on rock, rocky, rough roads just so that they could come and worship at the feet of the baby Jesus. And in this way, we see how they invested a whole lot of time just to spend time with Jesus. And listen, they not only invested their time traveling this great distance, but they also invested uh, their talents. They, they invested their talents as religious researchers. And this brings us to our second point. Because listen, these wise men, you know, they invested a great deal of time, uh, but a part of that time was spent using their talents uh, to research the religious writings and, and understand the birth of the baby Jesus from the scriptures. And uh, with this as the focus, I, I want to continue to make our way through Matthew chapter 2. If you would look with me here again, Matthew chapter 2, beginning again at verse 1. Here Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now here in these verses, Matthew again tells us that these wise men had been following the Messiah's star. They had seen his star while they were there in the east. And, and this is especially interesting uh, because, listen, these magi were, were actually talented astronomers, as, as many scholars have suggested. 
they were probably talented astronomers who ended up you know, seeing this strange star, and they followed this unusual star from Persia all the way to Jerusalem. And while the, you know, the modern astronomers of our age attempt to explain this cosmic anomaly by pointing to comets or you know, others would suggest supernovas or even some sort of celestial conjunction, the fact remains the same regardless. Persian astronomers followed an unusual star right to the home of the baby Jesus. And, and while it's true that these wise men used their understanding of the stars in order to follow this cosmic anomaly, it's also true here that the Magi had used their talents. They used their talents as religious researchers as they spent time examining some of the Old Testament prophecies, which actually pointed to the first advent of our Savior Jesus. Now, to prove my point, if you would, let's look again here at verse 2. Here again, the wise men ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, here in this verse... We find these wise men from the east, probably from Babylon. They're presenting King Herod, the the king of Israel at this point in time, with four details about the one they were searching for. Notice again, the the, the very first detail, uh, we should notice the word he. He, They're looking for a he, which tells us that they they were searching for a male. That they were searching for a he. And secondly, we see that he has been born, uh, which tells us that they're searching for a baby, a male child. Uh, thirdly, they knew that the male child would be of Jewish descent because they're looking for the one born king of the Jews. They were looking for one of Jewish descent from the kingly lineage of David. Fourthly, they knew that, that this child was worthy to receive their worship. They said, we want to know where is he who has been born king of the Jews. We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. They came to worship the baby Jesus. And as we consider all of these details that they already knew, I have a hard time believing that all this information came from a special star that was shining up in the sky. I don't think they looked up, saw a special star, and the star was just like, hey, here's some details about the one you're searching for. No. So then the question is this. How did these guys know so much about the promised Messiah? How did they already know these details that this was a male child born of the Jews and worthy of worship? Well, I believe the answer to this question is found in the writings of the Old Testament prophets. And to prove my point, we should spend some time considering the influence that the prophet Daniel had on these men. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Matthew, let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of Daniel, I just want to remind you that Daniel was a young Jewish boy when he was captured and carried away as a captive into Babylon. And yet, as he grew up there in Babylon, it wasn't long before the Lord raised Daniel up and used him in many mighty ways for more information. You might just read through the book of Daniel in, in, in your time. Uh, but, but the king of Babylon was so convinced that Daniel was being led by the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, actually decided to put the prophet Daniel in charge of all the magi. Let's consider how Daniel describes it here in Daniel chapter 2. If you would look with me there at verse 47. Here we learn that the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, 
and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Here in these verses, we learn that the prophet Daniel became the chief administrator over all of the king's astrologers and all of the magi who were there in Babylon. And listen, we know that the prophecies of Daniel were written right there in Babylon. And no doubt that this information was passed down to the very magi that he was administrating over. And no doubt that Daniel's prophecies had a lasting influence on the Magi there in Babylon. To prove my point, I want to flip forward to Daniel chapter 9. Continue holding your place there in Matthew. But let's flip forward to Daniel chapter 9 because it's here in the ninth chapter of Daniel's gospel account where we find the angel Gabriel now. Gabriel shows up and reveals the precise time period when the promised Messiah would present himself as, uh, you know, the the, the one who came in the name of the Lord. And and with this as the focus, if you would look with me here at Daniel chapter 9, I want to begin reading there at verse 24. Here the angel Gabriel declares, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate." Now, here in this incredible prophecy, we find the angel Gabriel. He's presenting Daniel with a numerical prophecy, which was designed to reveal the precise period of time when the Messiah would arrive and reveal himself to Israel. You can actually calculate using, uh, you know, the, uh, the seven-year Shemitahs to calculate all this information out. It, it, when you do the proper calculation, it actually puts you at the period of time when the Messiah is preparing to be crucified, or as, as, as Gabriel puts it, to be cut off, but not for himself. It's a very intriguing prophecy. We don't have time to develop the whole thing. If you want to know more about this, I encourage you to go listen to my Eschatology 101 study, which is found in the beginning of the Revelation series. Uh, it'll blow your mind to really grasp you know, uh, uh, all of this information. But, uh, but here in this prophecy, we find Gabriel presenting Daniel with a formula for figuring out the precise time when the Messiah would arrive. And in this way, the Lord was actually providing the people uh, there in that period of time with a prophetic formula uh, for searching and finding our Savior. Now, I should remind you that this prophecy was presented to Daniel while he was there in Babylon and and while he was actually overseeing uh, all of the Magi there in Babylon. Therefore, it seems reasonable to me that the Magi received this prophecy and that they had all these years to calculate the time period of the Messiah's arrival. 
if my speculation about this is correct, then we can also assume then that the Magi were ready to roll. That when it came to this specific period of time that they were all eyes open, that they were looking for some sort of sign to guide them and lead them to the, the Messiah. And so when the strange star appeared there in the sky, they knew this is, this is time to go. This is time to go and find this Messiah. It only seems logical to me that they would interpret the cosmic anomaly as a sign that it was time to go in search of the Messiah prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. And after arriving in Jerusalem, the Magi were then given a little more information about the prophesied location of our Messiah's birth. And with this in mind, let's make our way back to Matthew chapter 2. I want to focus your attention back on Matthew chapter 2, beginning there at verse 3, because here Matthew writes, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, here in these verses, we find King Herod, he's sending for the religious leaders of Israel. And the reason why was because King Herod didn't have a a full understanding of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, We learn here that he uh, had to inquire of the religious rulers uh, where the Christ was to be born. And, and so, uh, thankfully for the Magi here, the chief priests and the scribes of Israel, they showed up and, and referred to a prophecy that we find in, Math, uh, in Micah chapter 5. And so with that, let's look here at Matthew chapter 2. It's Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, where they said to him, in, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, and here's where they quote Micah, You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Here we find the chief priests and the scribes, they're pointing King Herod to this prophecy found in Micah chapter 5, and according to the prophet Micah, the promised ruler of Israel who would shepherd the people of God, well, it was predetermined in this prophecy that this Messiah would be born in the little town of Bethlehem in order to to better understand the identity of this promised ruler. If you would, let's consider this prophecy in more detail. So hold your place here in the the Gospel of Matthew. Let's turn in our Bibles to Micah chapter 5. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of Micah, I want to point out that this prophecy actually provides us with more information about the Messiah than just the location of his birth. And as you make your way to Micah 5, I just want to remind you that there's more than 300 prophecies found in the Old Testament which point us to the first advent of our promised Messiah. More than 300 prophecies. There's a, an incredible amount of information about our Messiah in the Old Testament. And it's here in Micah 5 where we're presented with not only the location of the first advent, but also the identity of our supernatural shepherd. And with this as the focus, look with me here at Micah chapter 5. I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here the prophet writes, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. 
Now here in this prophecy, we not only learn that the promised Messiah would be born there in Bethlehem, but we also learn that his goings forth are from a, a old, but he's not just like some old guy. No, no, that the, the, the beginnings of this ruler are from everlasting. He's from the everlasting. Well, what does that mean? Well, that, that the, the origin story of our Savior is that he is from eternity past. Or in other words, he's infinite. The Son of God put on human frailty in the incarnation, and yet in his deity, he is infinite. Now, I realize that there are many who want to argue that Jesus is not the incarnate Son of God. There are many who want to suggest that Jesus has a beginning, that he was created specially by the Father at the time of his birth, and and that he's not uh, uh, one person within the triune Godhead. And yet here we see in this prophecy that that's not the case at all, that the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ has existed for all eternity that he is infinite in his origins, which is to say there are no origins of Jesus. He is. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When the Magi showed up to worship the baby Jesus, they were worshiping the physical incarnation of the infinite Son of God. And as we consider the everlasting identity of this supernatural child, well, it makes perfect sense for why this group of wise men from the East would spend their time as well as their talents in order to find this one who had been revealed by the Old Testament prophets. And not only did they use their talents as uh, manuscript researchers and stargazers, but they also used their talents as political diplomats so that they could, you know, uh, gain more information uh, about the location of the first advent. As a matter of fact, it's here in Matthew chapter 2 where we find them interacting with the, the rulers and the leaders there in Israel in order to gather more information about our Messiah. And if you would look with me again here at Matthew chapter 2, it's here in Matthew chapter 2 where we find Herod telling the wise men uh, where to find the birth of the baby Jesus. And if you would look with me there at verse 7, here Matthew writes, then Herod When he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, do you think that King Herod truly wanted to worship the baby Jesus? Do you think he truly wanted to submit himself to the king of kings? The answer is no. This, in the words of, you know, Admiral Akmar, it was a trap. It was, <laughs> it was definitely a trap. But the wise men, receiving the information that they were seeking, went then straight forward to Bethlehem so that they could bow themselves before the one who was born king of the Jews. And, and, and while their journey to Bethlehem is basically summed up in 11 verses, The fact is that this journey was based upon centuries of research, which had been conducted by focused astronomers who were dedicating their time as well as their talents to the sole purpose of finding the promised Messiah revealed by the prophet Daniel. Now, as we contemplate the example of these wise men, I want to take a moment to just gain a little perspective of our own lives. I want to take a moment to to just ask, you know, do we have the same perspective as those wise men. And the question that we ought to ask ourselves this morning is this, am I wisely investing my time 
Am I wisely investing my talent so that my Christmas can be centered around Jesus Christ? Am I wisely making sure that my time and my talents are being used to center my celebration around Christ Jesus? Or am I spending the bulk of my time and my talents on secular aspects of this holiday, uh, which really don't glorify Jesus Christ? And with this question of mine, I would just say that, you know, my prayer is that every Christian would follow in the footsteps of the wise men who invested their time and invested their talents so that they could simply worship at the feet of Jesus Christ. And listen, these wise men from the East not only invested their time and they not only invested their talent, but they also invested their treasures as they worshiped the baby Jesus. With this as the focus, let's continue to make our way through Matthew chapter 2. I want to focus your attention beginning there at verse 9. Here Matthew tells us that when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here in these verses, we find another piece of evidence that the wise men were actually uh, present uh, later after the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, they weren't there on the eve of the birth of Jesus, but afterwards. And the evidence of that is seen there in verse, uh, verse 11. Uh, there again, we learn that the supernatural star led these men to a house. Now, if this had been the night of our Savior's birth, then the star would have led them to a stable. Jesus was born in a stable and not a house. And yet here we find them in a house. Uh, and, and so with that, uh, there's good reason to believe that the three wise men, if, the, if we can even say three, uh, they were there after the birth of the Lord. It's also important for us to understand that uh, the fact that they weren't there on the day of Jesus' birth uh, is not really a problem. You know, I mean, and if you want to put the wise men next to, you know, the baby Jesus in your nativity scene, that's okay. Uh, I don't think that you'll spend any more time in purgatory if you do that. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of Christians who are very hung up about the exact precise date of Jesus' birthday. A lot of guys on, on the internet, uh, you know, will spend a whole lot of time debating about this and they're very hung up on it. And, and they want you to know that there's no biblical reason to think that Jesus was born on December the 25th. And, and I agree with those guys, first of all. I, I would point out that uh, there's actually reason to think that he was born at some other point in time rather than the dead of winter. Uh, we know that the shepherds were in the field watching the sheep, which is something that didn't really happen in the winter. Uh, so chances are Jesus was born sometime in the fall or maybe in the spring. But the idea that Jesus was born on December the 25th, uh, there's not any you know, biblical reason to believe this. Not only that, but there's also good reason to believe that many of our Christmas time traditions that we've embraced over the years, they're actually rooted in at best secular traditions or possibly even pagan celebrations of the winter solstice. And yet, uh, you know, the, the question that we have to ask is, can we engage in these traditions and still glorify the Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas? You know, it's not his birthday. He never told us to go cut down trees and pull them into the house. You know, there's nothing about lights, you know, or strangely decorated stockings over a chimney, which is a fire hazard, you know, like... 
Nothing in the Bible about any of this. Does that make it wrong? Does that make it bad or evil? You know, it's, it's real easy for us to, you know, think that, well, you know, if this isn't mentioned in the Bible, then I'm going to spend my Christmas time just arguing with the people who engage in these things. Is that the best way to spend our Christmas? Is that the best way to not spend our Christmas? Listen, before we get caught up in all of these arguments and all of these disagreements, I would just encourage you to keep Christ at the center of your Christmas. You know, and with this as the focus, let's consider the example, you know, of the, of the wise men here. If you would look with me again at verse 10, there we, uh, Matthew tells us that when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, was this December the 25th? No. Or did, they, did they even make it on time for the birth of the Savior? No, they missed the drummer boy. They missed the whole scene. They missed the whole celebration. They were late to the party. Should that have stopped their celebration? Absolutely not. They were filled and, and with exceeding joy as they rejoiced, even though they weren't there uh, on December 25th or, or on the day of our Savior's birth. They showed up to celebrate on the day they arrived. Why? Because their life was centered on Christ. Their whole purpose was the search for our Savior, regardless of what day they arrived. And as we consider the outpouring of rejoicing that came from these wise men, I should remind you uh, that they were the ones who were bringing the expensive gifts for Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, look with me again there at verse 11. Here Matthew tells us that when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here we find the wise men from the east. They're, they're falling down before the feet of Jesus Christ. And here he's called a young child. They're falling down before Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe they were a year late. Maybe they were two years late. He's called a young child here. But regardless of when they showed up, when they got there, they worshipped. They worshipped and, and they gave their gifts. Now, before we consider the significance of these three gifts, I should take a moment to point out that we really don't know how many wise men actually made this journey in search of Jesus Christ. It's traditional for us to believe that there were three wise men, and the reason why is because there were three gifts. There was the gift of gold, there was the gift of frankincense, and then the gift of myrrh. And so traditionally, you know, there's been the story of the three wise men. And some, some people online will tell you what their names were, which is, you know, interesting, but not biblical. Listen, there may have been three wise men. There may have been 300 wise men. We really don't know. But regardless of the exact number of wise men, uh, what we can say for sure is that the new Hallmark Christmas movie, Three Wise Men and a Baby, is going to be horrible. And I think I can say that with, with biblical accuracy. You know, the, the reason why is because it's a Hallmark movie. You know, it's just like, hey, work on your cards. You know, how about just make good cards first and, and then we can move over to movies. No, but seriously, you know, as we consider the sort of gifts that these wise men brought, I'll remind you that they were wise men and not wise women. You see, wise women would have brought formula. You know, they, they would have brought diapers, right? If, if wise women would have made the journey, you know, they would have brought, you know, a, a camel seat, you know, for the baby Jesus to keep him safe on the journey. You know, those camel seats were, you know, very practical gifts back then. But these weren't wise women giving gifts. These were wise men. 
And, and, you know, before we diss them for these gifts, hey, listen, if someone gives you gold, are you complaining? (laughs) Uh, You know, you can buy a lot of diapers with gold, right? So they brought gold, and I don't think uh, Mary complained. But you know what's interesting about this gift of gold is that gold was the gift that you would bring to a king. And so the fact that they're bringing gold to this baby, they're acknowledging this is a king. This is the one born king of the Jews, and they worshiped him with gold. They also gave Jesus frankincense because Jesus, listen, is, is, is our high priest. And frankincense was a perfume that was used by the, the priests there in the temple services. And in this way, I, I believe that they were worshiping Jesus as our high priest. Finally, they gave Jesus myrrh, which was a little bit morbid. Because myrrh was actually used in this period of time uh, to mask the odor of decaying bodies. Yeah, how twisted is that? They brought myrrh to a baby. And, you know, with that, they were effectively saying, he's going to die. And they worshiped him. Listen, without the death of Jesus, the birth is irrelevant. If Jesus failed to die for our sins and rise from the grave, what would his birth matter? The birth of the baby Jesus is important because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so they brought myrrh in celebration of what Jesus was going to accomplish for us on the cross. Now, as we contemplate the spiritual significance of these gifts, I should point out that, you know, the biblical tradition of giving gifts uh, you know, today here in, in the, 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 the modern age, you know, it's, it's, it's very different from what was happening back then. The Magi didn't show up and exchange gifts with one another. They, they didn't show up and say, well, here's my gift for you, other Magi. Or they didn't show up and exchange gifts with Mary and Joseph and the drummer boy and all the other characters there. No, they opened their treasures and they presented gifts to whom? To him. To Jesus. Because for them, Christmas was all about worshiping Jesus. And based on the perspective of these wise men, we must remember that Christmas is about Jesus. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to exchange Christmas gifts with one another. But I remember when I was a kid and when I, when I learned that Christmas was uh, the way that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, I was always like, well, why are we giving each other gifts then uh, when it's his birthday? If it's his birthday, shouldn't we be giving our gifts to him? Uh, and then I didn't complain as I opened every gift. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's his birthday. I sure am happy it's his birthday because look at all these you know, extra gifts I'm getting this year. You know, but really this is an example of grace. If you show up to somebody else's birthday party and you receive a bunch of gifts, it's not because you deserved it. It wasn't your birthday. Any gift that you receive at somebody else's birthday party is just a a gift of grace. And that's certainly true of the gift of grace that we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And when we celebrate Christmas and we exchange gifts with one another, I do believe that this is... Uh, an example of God's grace, that we're being gracious to one another, giving gifts that that we don't deserve or or receiving gifts that we don't deserve because it is our Savior's birthday. And with that, you know, I really take issue with with the Santa story because the Santa story is really in conflict with grace, you know, because he gives gifts to 
the good little kids, right? And the bad little kids, like I was, always got coal, you know, and, and, and so that's why I was always starting fires. But, uh, <laughs> but, but the, the, the reality is that, you know, the, the story of Santa, that he's checking his list and he's checking it twice and you better be naughty or uh, you better be, be uh, not, not be naughty. I, I heard it the way I heard it when I was a kid, you know. So. <laughs> but the idea is that if you're a good kid, you get presents. That is in conflict with the gospel of grace. And, 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 you know, we ought to consider that as we pass along these traditions to our kids. I can't help but to wonder, you know, how many kids would really grasp the gospel of grace if you understood that you're getting gifts even though you're naughty. Let's be honest, most kids are naughty. You don't give them gifts because they did everything right all year, right? No, you give them gifts because you love them. Because you're gracious to them, that ought to be the story that we pass down to our kids as we celebrate Christmas. At the same time, listen, I can't help but to wonder how many Christians get extremely caught up in modern traditions to the degree that they fail to keep Christ at the center of our Christmas celebrations. And with that being the case, I want to encourage you that we ought to be following in the footsteps of the wise men by worshiping Jesus with our treasures. Without debate, it's easy for us to lose our focus during this wonderful time of year. And and it's for this reason that I just want to begin the Christmas season by keeping us on course, encouraging you, let's follow in the footsteps of the wise men who, you know, they traveled from the east and all the way maintain their, their, their Christ-centered Christmas by focusing on the, their search for our Savior. And with that yeah, as the example here, you know, rather than investing all of our time here at the end of this year preparing our homes for a mythical gift giver who will never actually arrive, sorry if that shocks you right now, but listen, why celebrate a mythical gift giver when we can celebrate the one who has truly given us the greatest gift ever? Jesus Christ is the one to be celebrated. He is the one who should be glorified. If you want to attribute the, you know, the glory of the gifts that your kids are receiving to anyone, point at Jesus Christ. Point to Jesus Christ as the one who has provided us with all good things. And with that, let's invest our time in this holiday season, preparing to worship the one who freely offers us the free gift of grace. And rather than investing all of our talents, trying to you know, accomplish every traditional task, let's, let's just make sure that we're spending our time wisely, investing the talents that God has given us on the tasks uh, that, that the Lord would lead us to uh, engage in as we help others to understand that Christmas is about Christ Jesus. And rather than investing all of our treasures, buying an abundance of expensive gifts for uh, people who probably don't need them at all, Let's instead maintain a Christ-centered Christmas by investing our treasures in the, in the true Christmas tradition of using our wealth to worship the King of Kings. Uh, finally, I want to conclude this study by uh, considering how the wise men, uh, you know, they continue to maintain a Christ-centered Christmas long after they left the home where the baby Jesus was found. And with this in mind, if you would look with me once again here at Matthew chapter 2, I want to begin reading at verse 12. It's there in verse 12 where Matthew writes, Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. 
Now, here in the, the final verses of our, of, our, of our text today, you know, we learn here that the Lord divinely warned these wise men in a dream. The Lord divinely warned these wise men in a dream that Herod, who was the current king of Israel at that point in time, was not to be trusted. Why? Well, because he was a politician. But, <laughs> no, but, but seriously, you know, that, that, that Herod had, you know, an, uh, uh, an evil motive. And we see this as he even called for the execution of every child under a specific age. What a horrific thing to do. And yet he was so afraid of losing his own kingly position that he called for the execution of, of several, uh, I would guess several hundred kids. And so the Lord here, you know, is, uh, you know, speaking to these wise men in their dreams to go home another way. And based on this, proper Christmas perspective, you know, the, the, the wise men obeyed the heavenly instructions of the Lord. Rather than obeying an earthly king, they obeyed the Lord. And that's important for us to recognize that anytime our political leaders give us instructions that are in conflict with the word of God, the word of God is what's right. The word of God is what's true. And these guys, you know, kept First things first, by obeying the Lord rather than an earthly ruler. Not only that, but it's also reasonable to assume that these men probably returned home and began to tell people in their homeland about the birth uh, of of the one that is found in the prophecy of Daniel. I, I don't have concrete evidence of this, but there are traditional stories which would lead us to believe that these men returned to Persia and then eventually helped to spread the Christian faith in this area of the world. And if that's the case, well, then it's only reasonable for us to conclude that these wise men continued living their lives by maintaining a proper perspective about the meaning of Christmas. That they not only had Christ at the center of their focus there at the house of Jesus, but Christ remained the center of their focus as they returned home and shared the good news with others. And what this means then is that they continued to invest their time. They continued to invest their talents and they continue to invest their treasure uh, in, in this, uh, this goal of spreading the good news, pointing other people to the gift of grace, which was wrapped in human frailty and crucified on a cross for our sins. Christian, listen, there's nothing wrong with engaging in holiday traditions. And a lot of Christians are going to spend time debating about whether you can or can't. Can you have a Christmas tree? You know, can, can you have stockings over the, uh, over the fireplace? You know, can, you, can you give gifts to one another? Can you, can you have eggnog and these sorts of things? You know, and, and you'll see Christians just debating this and debating this. And listen, let each believer be convinced in their own minds. If you can take secular traditions or even pagan traditions and use them for the glory of Jesus Christ and, and there's no conviction in your heart about that, that, that it's wrong or something, then by all means, have fun. Enjoy this time of year. And, and if you just feel just like, oh, this is pagan and dirty and I just can't even imagine you know, putting up a Christmas tree in my home and these sorts of things, if, if that's your conviction, be true to that conviction and don't do it. But you know what's really bad is when we forget all about Jesus Christ and focus all of our energy arguing with one another about these non-essential things. If you take issue with another Christian because they see it differently, get your focus back on Jesus Christ. If you want to try to sniff out who in the church has a Christmas tree in their house and you want to try to debate them, why? I don't see any scripture that would lead us to do that. 
And if you are, you know, you're dedicated to convincing everyone that you have to have a Christmas tree in your house. Otherwise, you know, they win, you know, the, you know, those people, those people who want to, you know, destroy Christmas, you know, the, 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 the war on Christmas is, is coming to get us. Right. And so we have to convince all Christians to have Christmas trees. Right. Well, that, that is equally pointless. Let, let every believer just be convinced in their own mind, whether they can engage in these traditional trappings or not. And regardless of which side of this debate you fall on, just make sure that Christ is at the center of whatever holiday tradition you have or don't have. Keep Christ at the center of it all, and then you can make decisions that are glorifying to the Lord. As we enter into this Advent season, let's just remember that Christmas time, it's about Jesus. And those who are wise will choose to invest their time and their talent and their treasure so that we can become Christians who are keeping Christ at the center of our Christmas celebrations. Let's pray.